So this week, it's kind of funny. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with a sermon this week, and uh, God kept bringing me back to a place time and time again. And what's interesting is Jeff planned worship this morning, and as Kelly prayed at one point there, it's funny, some of the words and some of the message that I'm going to bring this morning are contained in the, in the songs, they're contained in the words that were prayed, so God totally worked that out here this morning. So last week and the last several months, we've been looking at spring, spring family commitment. We've been looking at what do we believe, we've been looking at what do we commit to, uh, what, are, what are some of the things um, that God is calling us to do and be here at the spring, and the obvious question that came up was, now what? Now what do we do? You know, we had Spring Family Commitment Sunday, now what? And so let me just make a quick note here. I'm, I'm used to lots of kids making noise, so it, it would be great if somebody like pinched somebody every once in a while or spilled something or whispered really quietly, loudly. And so anyways, so now what? It's kind of like the day after Christmas. That's sort of how I was thinking about it. You start thinking about Christmas in mid to late October. Or if you're my wife, July 5th, you start thinking about Christmas. You start seeing Christmas commercials on TV. How many of you have seen Christmas commercials already? Yes, they've been on for like a month already. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I walked into Walmart, and their garden department is now Christmas Central. And this was a couple weeks ago they did that. It's crazy how quickly we start changing. So we start buying gifts. We start making party plans. We, we get everything ready. We put our decorations out, our tree up, our, our gifts wrapped. Christmas morning arrives and we open all of our presents and we go about to all of our activities of the day. And then December 26th comes around. Now what? Yeah, credit card bills, yeah. Right? We've been so focused. We've been spending so much time talking about, learning about, debating, discussing what we were going to do last week, Spring Family Commitment, that it could be that today could be a, a Christmas letdown, right? We could kind of feel that way. But I'm saying, you know what? No way. Now isn't the time to coast. Now is the time to mash the foot to the floor. For those of you who watch NASCAR. Now's the time to put the pedal to the metal, I believe. Now's the time for the spring to say, let's go. It's go time. And as I prayed about where God wanted me to be this morning, He took me back to a passage of Scripture that I've been longing to preach on for a good while. And I just haven't because He's taken me other places. It's one of my favorite letters from the Apostle Paul. And I believe it's one that contains real truth, not just for the first century church. It contains real practical truth for us today. It's relevant for us today. I heard someone say recently, you can see there in your notes, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. I heard someone say recently, a leader that I respect, if there's any book of the Bible that you should memorize, it would be Ephesians. I was like, really? But then you know what? This week I read the whole thing again. I'm like, I think you're right. There's just really good stuff in the book of Ephesians. And so what we're going to do is, I'm, I'm going to do a series of messages on Ephesians, but I'm not going to go verse by verse through the entire book. I think I'm going to kind of do topic by topic. 
So I'm going to pick out the topics that I feel like the Holy Spirit's leading me to, and then that's where we're going to go. So let's look at a little background. Paul wrote this letter sometime in around the year 60 AD. And believe it or not, the book of Ephesians was written from a prison cell. Paul was in prison in Rome, and he wrote this. He wrote it to the church at Ephesus. Now we have to understand something. There wasn't like a church in Ephesus. There were a bunch of little churches, house churches in Ephesus that called themselves, and they would come together at times. But he was writing it to the entire city of Ephesus, the believers that were in Ephesus. Okay, so it was written to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major trade city. And the main purpose, I believe, that Paul wrote this letter was to encourage the church. He wanted the church to be strengthened by it, to be emboldened by it. He wanted the church to know what our identity is, who we are as a church. And so Paul starts out the book of Ephesians with something that I like to call a list of important reminders. These are things we need to know. These are things we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. So let's start. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How often do we describe ourselves as blessed? Sometimes we do, right? We say that we're blessed. We look at our life and we say, I'm, I'm just so blessed. Some of us say that just sort of as a, I don't know, how are you? I'm blessed. It's a way of greeting, right? But sometimes I think we look at our lives and we say, man, I'm not <laughs> really blessed. There's stuff going on in my life. I sure don't feel very blessed. I don't have as much money as the next person. My car breaks down a lot. Our home is tiny. There's always month at the end of money. How many of you have ever experienced that? You, you get to the end of the money and you go, wait, there's still a month to go here. i still got a week. What, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying we've been blessed in the spiritual realms, in the heavenly realms. He's reminding us to look beyond the end of our nose, quite honestly. He's asking us to look beyond our circumstances. I heard a speaker say one time, he, he walks up to people and he says, how are you? And oftentimes he'll hear the answer, pretty good under the circumstances. How many of you have ever heard that expression? And you know what this guy says to people like that? What are you doing under the circumstances? Get out from under them. You don't have to stay under them. Paul is saying, look at the blessings that have been given to you. He's reminding us here at the beginning of this, of this book that there are blessings in our lives that we need to recognize. And then he goes on to list them. And I love this list. Not a single one of these have anything to do with our circumstances at all. Not one of them. So turn to your neighbor and say, you are blessed. Here are some reasons why Paul says we are blessed. You ready? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Do you remember when you were a kid on the playground at recess and it was kickball time? And they picked two captains, normally the most athletic kids, and they picked one after another. There was always that one kid that was last. And it was always kind of one of these, uh, I'll take Jimmy. You guys remember? I mean, it was cruel back then, sometimes. But it always felt good to not be the last pick. It always felt good to be chosen somewhere early in the process. Now, what was good for me was I was a pretty big kid. And so I got picked early on. I was also a really clumsy kid. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't the greatest at kickball. I mean, I might kick it a mile or I might miss it. It just <laughs> was one of the two. This is kind of how it was, right? So we wanted to be chosen early. We wanted to be valued. There was something that happened within us when we were chosen. We were picked to be part of the team. And so here, Paul is reminding us that God chose us. God adopted us. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. This is really important. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Paul isn't saying God wants us to be part of the team. God wants us to be part of the family. We are not just chosen. It says here we are marked. We are sealed. We are identified as His. Now, I like to look at this. I like to read between the lines with this. So how many of you had kids that played some sort of sport? Soccer, softball, football. And he goes, so what do you do when little Tommy gets out in front of everybody on the soccer field and scores a goal? You jump up and down, right? All the dads on the field, are the, the dads, right? We're going, that's my boy, <laughs> right there. That's my boy. I taught him everything, right? That's my boy. I like to look at this verse where God says we receive a mark when we're part of the family. I, I love to look at this and imagine God up at heaven going, that's my boy. That's my girl. God adopted us into His family. We're His beloved sons and daughters and He's up in heaven going, Peter, did you see what my boy did? Did you see what my girl did? I get excited about that. We've been chosen to be part of God's family. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are chosen. So we're, we're blessed. We're blessed because we're valued and we are chosen. Let's keep going. 
we go to verse 7, the beginning of verse 7 says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The next blessing is this, redemption. The word literally means this, rescue from loss by paying a ransom. That's a pretty cool definition. Let's face it, we were lost. Hurtling down a path towards ultimate destruction. We were headed towards permanent and eternal separation from God until Jesus walked willingly to a Roman cross. He poured out His precious blood for us. He redeemed us. He rescued us from loss by paying our ransom. But it gets even better. Let's go to the next part of that verse. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Not only are we ransomed, not only are we rescued, not only are we redeemed, but we're also forgiven. How powerful is that? We are no longer held responsible for the debt of our sins. Those sins are forgiven. When we ask for forgiveness, when we admit our wrong, they're forgiven, wiped clean. Why? At the end of this verse, throw that back up there. In accordance with the riches of what? God's grace. God's grace alone. Hear me. I can't do enough to get my sins forgiven. There's nothing that I can do that adds to God's grace. God's grace is full. God's grace is enough. It's sufficient. And listen, God didn't grudgingly give us His grace. The angels weren't up in heaven twisting God's arm trying to talk Him into giving us grace. Nobody had to talk Him into it. If we finish this sentence, it actually goes into the next verse. Look at this in verse 8. If we read the whole thing, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Here is my proof that God's arm wasn't being twisted when He poured out His grace on us. See the word lavished? Here's a definition. To bestow something in generous and extravagant quantities upon. Generous and extravagant quantities of grace have been poured out on us. He lavishes on us His grace, His love, His mercy. I love the way Paul wrote this. It totally sums up the way we are to see ourselves. We're blessed. We're chosen members of His family. We're rescued. We're forgiven. And all of this is lavished upon us. That right there should have us whooping and hollering. This is our identity. This is who we are. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're rescued. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're forgiven. And this is a long one. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have had grace lavished upon you. 
Now, let's go a little bit further. This is really powerful stuff now. Ephesians 1, 17-21. Let's read it. I keep asking that God... Now, this is Paul speaking. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is kind of a long couple verses here. But what I want us to look at here, this begins by saying, Paul prayed. It says, I keep asking. This is something that Paul saw as urgent. He said, there's some things that are following here that you need to know that I keep asking God for. Because I think it's really important for you to know these things. So what was Paul asking God for? What did he want the church at Ephesus to know about? What does he want us to know about? These are really, really important things for us to grasp. There's three things I'd like to point out here. In verse 17, it says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know Him better. Now listen. Let me teach you something really important here if you don't already know it. When we want to know something more about a subject, what do we do? We study it. We read about it. We learn everything that, that, that we can about it. But all too often we apply that same process to God. Let me tell you why this is wrong. We read books about God. We have Bible studies about God. Pastors preach sermons about God. But that's not what Paul is asking, us, asking God for here. This is really important. When we look at a verse like this and we apply that kind of process, we see it as head knowledge. We need to know about God. We need to study Him more. We want the Holy Spirit to tell us more about God, reveal more about God. But Paul isn't on his knees continually praying that we learn to know more about God. Paul is on his knees continually praying so that we learn to know God. He wants us to know Him as a person, a relationship, not head knowledge, heart to heart. This is who God is. We interact with Him because He's a living, breathing God. Our our relationship with Him grows and expands. Paul believed, as I do, that an intimate, personal relationship with God is critical for us. I don't care what you know about God. I care that you know Him. And Paul prayed that over and over again. The second thing here, if we go to verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious glorious inheritance in His holy people. The word heart here in the original language is the center or core of our being. I think I talked about that during worship. It's the deepest part of who we are. And Paul is saying that in our deepest center part of us, who we are, we need to see something. And that is hope in our glorious inheritance. I find this interesting. Paul doesn't say that he prayed 
for us to know for sure our inheritance. He prayed for hope. I think that's on purpose. I love the word hope. Oftentimes we, we say things like, well, I hope that's true. Don't we? How often do we say that? I hope that's true. Well, I sure hope so. We say that when we truly don't know whether or not something is true. Correct? But what happens when we hope? How important is hope? Well, listen to this. The original Greek word here for the word hope actually means expectation. Well, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? What happens when you expect something to be true? A little different than, I hope it's true. It's I expect it to be true. Do you see the difference? Go back to my Christmas analogy. Children can't wait for Christmas. They get more and more excited. They expect to receive something, don't they? Can you imagine if your kids came downstairs or came out of their bedrooms on Christmas morning and there was nothing under the tree? Now, let's be honest, that happens. Sometimes, when we don't have any hope, it can be pretty devastating. When we can't have an expectation of something good, or if, we're, if our expectation is that life's just going to kick us in the teeth the rest of our life, then we don't have any hope. And it's very difficult to operate that way. We see the world through a hopeless lens. Have you ever met anybody with no hope? When someone has no hope, they have no motivation. They have no reason to try. They have no reason to try to find a solution, to do anything different. But when there's hope, I believe even the tiniest sliver of hope, the possibility that there just might be a way, I believe that changes everything. For those of us in the room who have been in hopeless situations, when there was the tiniest sliver of hope, you know what I'm talking about. When we look at a situation, we go, you know what, a couple minutes ago, I was thinking there was nothing. Now I'm thinking there might be something. It changes how we see it. There's something that gets strengthened within us when we have hope. Where once there was hopelessness, and no expectation that anything could be different. Now, there might be a chance. Paul is praying here that we as followers of Christ would have hope. Hope that's in here, in the inner part of who we are. We would have a life of expectation. Now, Paul says here in this verse that, it's, that he wants us to put those verses back up. So he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now listen, if we stopped there, that's something awesome to hope for. Our glorious inheritance. How about it? When I get to heaven, you know what I'm going to inherit, right? You know what you're going to inherit when we get to heaven. But that's not where Paul stops. He goes on, and his incomparably great power for us 
who believe. And he goes on to explain what that power is. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, our inheritance isn't just internal inheritance. Our inheritance is the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Him in our lives. It's a power that's not comparable to anything else that exists. It's a power that's greater than the enemy. It's greater than His minions. It's greater than His schemes. It's more powerful than any problem or trial we ever face. Paul knew this. He believed it. He experienced it himself. What this power looked like. What was possible with it. And he prayed that every single one of us would know that power in our inner core. And the hope that comes with it. Paul's expectation was that when we, as followers of Jesus, we walked in our identity, we truly knew God, not about Him, but we knew Him. And we lived our lives that were marked by the hope and expectation of the Holy Spirit's power working through us. He knew it would radically change us and impact the world around us. Folks, this is who we are. This is our inheritance. Something just popped into my head. Think about it. What do you do to get an inheritance? Nothing. So when my parents pass away and and their estate is settled, what will I have to do to receive my inheritance? Be the son. You see, when we read this kind of thing, it takes away all the striving. I don't have to work to be a son. I don't have to measure up to be a son. I don't have to, to check off these, this list of to-dos to be a son. I'm simply a member of the family. When we step into that kind of identity, when we realize your sons and daughters are the Most High God, and so your inheritance is this, period. Then we start to walk in it. That power is available to you. Why? Because you're a son. You're a daughter. That hope is available to you. Why? Because you're a son or a daughter. And it changes how we live, in my opinion. So my invitation to you this morning is, I invite you to claim your inheritance. I call you forward and say, come get your inheritance. Today, it's available to you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would realize these things that Paul saw as so important for us. I pray that we would recognize how much of a blessing we really have in our lives. pray that we would realize that we're chosen, that we're a member of the family, redeemed, forgiven, that, our, that Your grace has been lavished upon us. Lord, I pray that every day we would know You better personally i pray that we would we would have this hope this expectation that you are who you say you are you do what you say you do and know that beyond a shadow of a doubt i pray that we would understand that our inheritance in you is powerful we would seek 
to be filled with that power and used by you to affect the world around us. Thank you, Father, for, for men like Paul who wrote down your heart that we can read today and study and, and see what you really want us to, to understand and know. And I pray now that we take that knowledge and we live it to change our world. In Jesus' name, amen.